This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Ann Patchett, author of Bel Canto and several other novels, spoke in Blue Hill in August at an event that was organized by the Word Festival and Blue Hill Books. As she launched her ninth novel, Tom Lake, Patchett spoke with Lynn Bolger, executive director of the Authors Guild Foundation, and took questions from a live audience. Even if you're not familiar with Ann Patchett's work, I think you'll enjoy this discussion, which was recorded by Matt Murphy. Hi. That's like... (laughs) Is it on? Yeah. That's the sure sign of a crowd that's been waiting for somebody to come up here. Thank you. Um, I know many of you in this fabulous crowd, um, but for those of you who I don't, I'm Samantha Haskell. I'm the owner of Blue Hill Books, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. We're so grateful to the Bay School for opening their doors to us and allowing us to me all gather here in beautiful Emlyn Hall. Sasha, Jen, thank you so much. Um, WERU is our media partner for this and other events this summer. We're so fortunate to have such a fantastic local radio station and Matt Murphy is just simply the best. Thank you, Matt. Tonight's event will be recorded for future radio broadcasts, so I'll take this moment to ask everyone to please turn off their cell phones. (laughs) Um, This event is co-sponsored and is a fundraiser for WORD, the Blue Hill Literary Arts Festival, which happens here in Blue Hill each October. This will be our seventh year running. Um, Yeah! (laughs) The festival is so much fun and truly not possible without your support. So thank you to everyone who's donated so far. We're very, very grateful. And we have a table for donations at the door if you're so inclined on the way out. Um, We also have a Flash in the Pan street dance fundraiser coming up on Labor Day in the town park. So please make sure to join us for that. Um, At this year's festival, our keynote speakers are novelist Jennifer Egan and New York Times book review critic at large, A.O. Scott. We're very excited about both of these, so make sure to stay on the mailing list. Get on the mailing list if you're not. And um, the weekend will be full of many other authors, workshops, songwriting, poets, and poetry readings. We have a full schedule in the back. It includes kids' events. Um, Speaking of kids, you may have noticed (laughs) this one. Um, My due date is in just a few days, Um, (laughs) so I'm very glad to be here. Um, Early this spring, when my colleagues and I were planning the summer schedule, we knew it was going to be a little hectic because of that timing. So I said, you know what, let's just not do any events in August. And then literally the next day, a rep from Ann's publisher called and said, Ann would love to come up and do an event at the store in August. Um, And, you know, of course, we could not say no to that. So we're very, very glad to be here tonight. And in fact, we now have three more events scheduled this month. (laughs) Um, Two brilliant poets with new collections, Helena Lipstadt and B. Gates, as well as Nancy Crochery. Um, Those are all co-sponsored with the library. So check our website or their website for details on those. Um, 
finally, a huge thank you to my colleagues, Matt, Sarah, Dave, and soon to be Amy, without whom all of our events, the bookstore, my sanity, would not be possible. Um, thank you, all of you. Um, yes, a round of applause for that, for sure. Um, so I assume that Anne Patchett needs no introduction to this crowd, but in case you were wrangled here by your house guests or just happened to pull in to see what was going on at the Bay School on a Friday night, uh, Anne is the author of nine novels, including Belcanto, State of Wonder, The Dutch House, and most recently, Tom Lake. She has written four books of nonfiction and in 2019 published her first children's book, Lambslide, followed by Scapegoat in 2020. She's been the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships, including a National Humanities Medal, England's Women's Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among many, many others. Her novel, The Dutch House, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her books have been both New York Times notable books and New York Times bestsellers. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. In November 2011, she opened Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. She has since become a vocal spokesperson for independent booksellers, championing books and bookstores on many platforms, including NPR, The Colbert Report, and Martha Stewart Show. Along with James Patterson, she is an ambassador for Bink, the book industry charitable foundation. In 2012, she was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And most of all, she is truly a bookseller's dream author. Her books resonate across readerships. You can always completely trust her to tell a good story, whether in fiction or nonfiction. Anne lives in Nashville with her husband, Carl, and their dog, Sparky, and we're so pleased to welcome her to Blue Hill this evening. She'll be in conversation tonight with our own Lynn Bulger. Lynn is the executive director of the Authors Guild Foundation, the oldest and largest professional organization for authors in the country. Lynn also launched and has run two ideas festivals, the College of the Atlantic Summer Institute and the Authors Guild WIT, Words, Ideas, and Thinkers Festival, held in the Berkshires in September. She is a great advocate for authors, books, and bookstores as well. And just an all-around lovely person. <laughs> she lives right here in Blue Hill with her husband, Tim, and their sweet pups. Um, so final logistics. Um, Anne has generously signed all of the books that we have for sale at the table in the back. If you'd like your book personalized, she is generously willing to stay after the talk to do this, but she needs to get to Bar Harbor tonight, so <laughs> let's be mindful of her time. Um, please line up along this wall. She'll sign at the table there um, and then exit along the stage um, after the event. And due to COVID, please um, don't ask to take pictures with them, but pictures during the event are fine. I think that's everything. Thank you again, all of you, so much for being here tonight. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming Ann Patchett and Lynn Bulger. Hey. Is this on? It's on. Hi. How's, how, test, 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 test. All right. Um, well, Anne, Anne is in Blue Hill. Um, when I saw on the Blue Hill Books uh, website 
that Ann Patchett was coming to Blue Hill. Um, Ann and I know each other an email-ish kind of relationship. I said, oh my gosh, Sam, there's no way to buy tickets. I don't know how to uh, do it, but I, I want a front row seat for this event. <laughs> and Sam said, well, I have something one better for you. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you, and I wanna say I have a suitcase full of adorable dresses, much like the one Lynn is wearing, but um, I got so soaked today and so cold, and I bought this thing, which I don't even like, but I'm <laughs> going to be buried in it, so I'm never, never taking it off. So please forgive me for my <laughs> casualness. So I'm gonna start with a question about, well actually, uh, sort of a, uh, I'm gonna read back to you things that you've written a little bit. I love that, or just things that I said in parties that I don't remember. <laughs> you don't remember that you didn't tell me to say that. Um, so if you've read anything about Anne at all, I think the most, um, written about quality of Ann Patchett is how kind she is. And we'll see about that, you know. <laughs> but no one talks enough about how funny she is. And no one, no one talks about how funny I am. We're talking about it. Right. So <clears throat> here's a quote I have right here <laughs> on my <laughs> Authors Guild Foundation note card. I have been shown so much kindness in my life, so for me to write books about good, kind people seems completely natural. When people say, oh, it's too nice, it's too naive, I just think, who killed your mother? That's very funny. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. On Alaska, Carl, you'll remember this. Despite the significant majesty of the place, standing in the river eight hours was not my idea of a good time. Bears prevented me from wandering off. Rain prevented me from reading on the shore. Mosquitoes prevented everything else. <laughs> so I'm gonna let you talk now. And um, do you have to cut the funny out of some things to keep the tone or? Do you just write? You know, I kind of think everything I write is funny. And like Belcanto, I think Belcanto is a really funny book. Uh, and every now and then, like once every five years, someone will come up to a signing table and say, I thought Belcanto was really funny. <laughs> and my heart just leaps. And like my sister. People think that I write these very heavy, sad books, and I find them to be hysterical. <laughs> and then people hear me speak, and they're like, you're so funny, why don't you write funny books? And I'm like, I do write funny books. <laughs> you just don't find them funny. <laughs> what I loved about Tom Hanks recording The Dutch House is it's very funny. If any of, did any of you listen to the audio of The Dutch? It's very, very funny. And I saw him a few months after I listened to it, and I had never listened to an audio of one of my own books. And he was 
his wife, Rita Wilson, was singing at the Ryman, and my husband and I went to see them, and we were backstage, and I said, I just wanted to say, I really appreciated how funny you made The Dutch House. I said, I think it's a very funny book, and I think that I am very funny, but nobody thinks I'm funny. And Tom and Rita both got this sort of like sad parent face. <laughs> and they said, oh, Anne, we think you're funny. <laughs> and in Tom Lake, there's actually a line that says, this isn't a funny book except for the, a story. This isn't a funny story except the parts that are. So now that you've dropped Tom Hanks' name. Yeah, right? See how seamlessly I did that perfect. right up front? Yeah. How about telling us all how you got your girlfriend, Meryl, to do Tom Lake? So Meryl recorded the audio for, for Tom Lake. And a lot of that was... I was kind of flying high on the whole Tom Hanks thing still, which I thought no pitches, no hits, which was a very good metaphor for Tom when I asked him. I was like, I don't think you're gonna do this, but I know you won't do it unless I ask. And I asked and he was like, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to do that. So Meryl Streep was always the voice in my head when I was writing Tom Lake. She has three daughters. This is a book about a woman who is an actress who has three daughters. It just made perfect sense. And um, I had met her 15 years ago. We had lunch because there was a hot minute where she was interested in playing Roxanne Koss in the movie of Bel Canto that did not work out. And it was very, very sad, as you might imagine. And I had a feeling that she would remember that whole thing. Um, but we had not stayed in touch. But my agent is Felicity Blunt who is the sister of Emily Blunt, and Felicity is married to Stanley Tucci. And I happen to know that Meryl Streep had been married to Stanley Tucci in at least one movie, and I thought this is gonna work fine. So I emailed Felicity and I said, I think that Meryl would be amazing for this. Is there any chance you would forward a note to her? And she said, no, but here's her email. And so, I wrote her an email and I said, this is what the book is about. Is there any chance you might do the audio? And she said, I am so flattered that you asked me. That is such an honor. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> uh, and she said, yes, of course I can do it in February. I said, don't you want to read the book first? And she said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> and she did it. And she was astonishing. And I got to sit in for the first two days of the recording. I was, I was in the room where it happened. <laughs> yeah. And, and she was great. Who's doing your next book, God? <laughs> God. <laughs> I have a call in. We'll, <laughs> we'll just have to see. And I, and I do the nonfiction, but I don't do the fiction. So, yeah. Okay. Check funny. Um, so let's talk about sexy. Tom Lake is a big return to Ann Patchett writing sex scenes. Which a is... big return. Did Ann Patchett used to write sex scenes? Okay. <laughs> Maybe they're not sex scenes, but was Bel Canto sexy or what? From the opening page where you describe the mouth, and then there's Carmen leaning her hip against a vibrating piano. <laughs> 
And Esmeralda. Boy, there's not much going on in Maine, is there, Lynn? <laughs> I do only have one child. I guess we're back to funny. <laughs> um, no, really. And the Esmeralda stitching the vice presidents, and you know. There's nothing sexier than getting oh, stitches. Oh my God, okay. okay. But all right, so all right. Tom Lake, for those of you who have read, you. I, There's sex. No, there is sex. Ann Patchett doesn't want this question. We're moving on. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. You know, um, what can I say? My father is dead. And I, um, I loved my father. I miss him terribly. There wasn't sex in the books uh-huh. until my father died. Uh-huh. I, I have this long and noble history of being the person whose books are chosen for the all-school freshman reads. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's because no one swears and no one has sex. Uh, and that was really because of my father. And no one smokes. My God, you know, as soon as, soon as my father died, every character in my novel lit up. <laughs> um, because my father would read my books before I sent them to my editor. He was great. He gave me great notes on all sorts of things. But he did not want my characters holding hands. He did not want them looking at each other. You know, he was like, what if a kid gets a hold of this thing and they're having, they're smoking? So they didn't swear, they didn't have sex, they didn't have a cigarette after sex. Um, and now they can do all of now those they things. Do do now that. they do. Right. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Dad. <laughs> You're listening to Main Currents on WERUFM. This is author Ann Patchett speaking with Lynn Bulger, executive director of the Authors Guild Foundation, at an event sponsored by the Word Festival and Blue Hill Books in August in Blue Hill. So the themes in Tom Lake. Um, what are they? I'll tell you. I want to know. Um, I, took, I took English in all of that. Um, so they're... they're there, let's talk about the mothers in Ann Patchett's books. So, Laura, Laura? I say Laura. Laura, because Laura. she got rid of the U. She got rid of the U, but yeah. Pronounced that way. She is the first main character who is a mother of children that sticks around. And, am I right? Run, mother is dead. Commonwealth, Mother is shirking. Dutch house, mother di- r- run, Mother's runs away. reprehensible, right? Yeah, yeah, that's tough, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But, um, but here's Laura in utter joy about having her three girls back. And is Beth here, Beth Gutchen? Yes. Hi. So it was Beth who told me that um, the girls are just happen to have the same name as the Todd girls. Yes. Do you know the Todd girls? Beth does. Beth, do you know the Todd girls? Very well. Oh, I love those Todd girls. Emily and Maisie and Nell. So because this book is centered around our town, the oldest daughter is named Emily. 
and I've had a couple of Nels in my life, and so I thought if you have an Emily and a Nell, you have to have a Maisie. And they were the three daughters of Dick Todd, Dick and Susan Todd, and Dick was my first editor for my first two books. So that's the way novels get written. All of these little things come back from the past. These three girls do not represent the Todd sisters. They are only named for the Todd sisters. And I asked their permission. Oh, that's so nice. Yes. And where was, so Dick died two years ago. Yes. And so you were in the thick of it. Did he know that the girls were in the book were named? His? No, no, Dick had, Dick died before I started this book. Oh, okay. So I think that that's probably why they were very much on my mind. Oh, I see. Oh, yes. I see. Okay. Yes. Um, our town, that's the crux of Tom Lake. How it started, is that right? Yes. So um, I've really been obsessed with our town my whole life. Uh, when I was nine, my best friend Tavia Cathcart's father directed a high school production of Our Town. And that was the first time I saw it. And then I probably read it when I was 14. And I think I have read it every year since, and I'm 59. And it's meant different things to me at different points in my life. And at this point in my life, I really see Our Town as a Buddhist text. It really, I mean, seriously, when you think about it, it's about paying attention to all of the very small moments in your life and realizing that your life is only these small moments. It's the garden and school and friendship and family and love and, and just the rhythms of the day. And if you miss those things, you then, in fact, miss your life. That is a theme throughout all your work. There's these beautiful passages about how days go by, years go by, well, what is the... Everything that you know about your life, I don't think I wrote out the quote, <laughs> um, will go away. Even the things that made you miserable and... Oh, you'll forget. You'll forget. The, the, you, Much of it you'll forget. You forget your life. You do. And so it's in the moment that you have to live and yeah. appreciate those things. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how did you come up with the name? Does that have significance? Um, I, I said early on quite often, it's the name of a lake, not the name of a Tom. But I wanted to name the book after the Summer Stock Theater. So there's a mythical Summer Stock Theater in Michigan, northern Michigan, uh, just south of Traverse City called Tom Lake. And Oh, it's real. No, no, no. Mythical. Oh, no. Myth mythical. Mythical. That means not real. Fake. Okay. Uh, English major. Um, we'll, we'll get through this. It'll be fine. So um, the thing about titles is if you come up with the title before you write the book, you can embed it in the book. And it's the easiest thing in the world. You could call a book anything as long as you know in advance and then keep dinging it again and again. What's really awful is when you write a whole book and you don't have a title, thinking you're gonna come up with one at the end, and that's a nightmare. So I thought, all right, this book is going to be named after the Summerstock Theater Company. And what I wanted was something 
that was like Simon's Rock or Jacob's Pillow. Oh. But I wanted also something that was three letters and four letters to be our town. I know, this is how I amuse myself at home. It's not, it's not that I think you're ever going to get it, but it, it has a sort of a subliminal kick to it. And I noticed when I listened to the audio, read by Meryl Streep, that um, it, it says our town, it says Tom Lake, our town, Tom Lake, our town, over and over and over again. And it does start to sort of twin in your mind. I'm very deliberate. It's incredible. What else you got? <laughs> so, uh, so, so the, there's obviously Chekhov. It's set in a cherry orchard. But it's a real cherry orchard. This is a cherry orchard you've visited near Traverse City many times. In Traverse times. City, yes. Yeah. So I have a wonderful friend named Aaron Whiting who lives in Traverse City, Michigan. Do you want to hear the story about how I met Aaron Whiting? It's such a good story. So when This is the Story of a Happy Marriage came out, maybe two years after I had owned the bookstore, and I was on fresh air, something that will never happen again because I dissed Terry Gross in these precious days. So that's, that's done. Um, you didn't say who she was. I didn't say who she was, but you knew. So do you want to talk about why? Like, it was why? completely... Because she kept asking me why I didn't have children. Over and over and over and Won't over and lonely? over and over again. Yes. Won't and you be lonely? Once I'm old and all alone and my husband is older and will probably be dead. It will be so sad and I'll be all alone because I don't have children. And I finally said... Listen, I don't have children. I'm happy to talk about this, but would you do this to Jonathan Franzen? Because he doesn't have children. And they... And, and Terry Gross doesn't have children. I mean, it's super weird. Anyway, she cut all of that from the interview, and, and there I go, and that's fine. So, um, wait, now I've completely lost my train of thought. The story of, of Aaron Whiting. So, Ben, Ben Whiting is driving from Michigan, where he lives, to Georgia to see his parents, and he hears me on the radio being interviewed by Terry Gross about marriage, and he is not far from Nashville, and he keeps thinking that I sound so much like his fiance, Aaron Anderson. And he pulls off the interstate because he is so close to Nashville to go to Parnassus Books to see if I am there to tell me that I remind him of the woman he's going to marry. <laughs> and I am not in the store, but my dog, Sparky, is working that day <laughs> without me. And, and Ben Whiting leaves a note saying, I heard you on Fresh Air, you remind me of my fiance, or really it was like, you have to meet my fiance. And he said, but more importantly, we have the same dog. He left an email, I never email people because I never want people to have my email. Um, but I emailed Ben and I said, show me a picture of your dog. And he sent me a picture of Scooter. We then began to email back and forth, back and forth pictures of our dogs. The next time he and Aaron and Scooter were driving across country, there is a point to this. 
He said, can we stop and say hello? I said, you should spend the night. So they all came, because I am so nice, just like you here. <laughs> so they spent the night, and our dogs were beshared. I mean, never have two dogs loved each other like these two dogs. They have been waiting for each other their whole life. Well, Ben Whiting is, of course, a magician, and often works on cruise ships. So when he has a gig on a cruise ship, they fly Scooter to Nashville to stay with us. <laughs> now, back to Aaron. Aaron. Just file that under nice. <laughs> so Aaron and I both went to Sarah Lawrence, although I am much older than she is, and we do have everything in the world in common. Aaron grew up on a cherry farm in Traverse City, Michigan, went to Interlochen, and later founded a professional theater company. She ran this professional theater company, Parallel 45, and right about the time I was getting ready to start this book, she got a fantastic, unbelievable job offer that was half the work for twice the money. And she left her theater company. They hired a new person to run the company, and two months later, the company she had moved to folded, and she didn't have a job. I said, Erin, I am so sorry. However, I am writing a book about a Traverse City cherry orchard and a professional theater summer stock. Come and work for me. And so I hired Erin to be my research assistant until she found another job, which she did, and I can talk about cherry trees. I can talk about fruit forever, <laughs> thanks to Aaron Whiting. Did you know that when you buy a fruit tree, you buy the bottom half and the top half separately? Do you know this? Okay, so let's take a Honeycrisp apple. Say you want a regular apple tree, you know, that's big in the field and all spread out. Then you buy the trunk and the root ball. If you're getting a Honeycrisp, that's a club apple. It's like a copyrighted apple. And you have to pay more money for that than you would a Golden Delicious. So the envy, the, you know, the sort of the stylish apples are a lot more money. And so you buy a Honeycrisp top and you buy a, a trunk and a ball that's going to be a spreader. Or maybe you want a high density Honeycrisp apple, which means that the trunk is like the size of a pencil and you put it on a wire fence and they, they're like six inches apart. High density apples, unbelievable. So they graft your Honeycrisp top onto the trunk and root ball and you pay for it and three years later you come back and pick up your tree. I hope you paid her a lot of money. I did, yeah. I mean, that's astonishing. That's what's so great about being a novelist. When people are like, I want to be a novelist because I want to express my feelings and I want to talk about the beauty of the world. I'm like, no, 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 no. You want to be a novelist because you want to have the opportunity to know the difference between a tart cherry and a sweet cherry and how they are harvested. Because 
at 59, what opportunity are you really going to have to dig in to the difference between tarts and sweets unless you're a novelist or unless you buy an orchard? I can also do this for theater, but I won't. <laughs> so, so do tell, like your research for, is, do you always have somebody or before Erin, the unemployed Erin, were you your own researcher? I do most of my research, but I lean heavily. I usually don't pay people. I usually just trick my friends into giving me the information that I need. For example, in the Dutch house, I had a character who had to go through medical school. So what I did was I made the character the same age as my husband because my husband had gone through medical school. And so I could just say, okay, what classes do you take this year? And then what do you do? And when do you get a cadaver? And then what do you do with the cadaver? You know, and, and so that's what I normally do. I just find somebody. But with Erin, it was, I would have leaned on her anyway if she had a job and I probably wouldn't have paid her. But the fact that she was out of work made it really dreamy because then I could double down on the fruit and the acting. So the whole cherry orchard, the metaphor for you know, youth, beauty, how fleeting it all is. Um, it's so beautiful how the time in that novel, it's um, like almost a fairy tale where you're here and you're being told a story about the past and then you're brought to the current day. And did, did you conceive of the novel as a back and a forth always or did that unspool? Was it ever chronological or was it always the mother telling her daughters the story? Do you know the children's book, The Interrupting Chicken? You do. Do you not? Oh, it's very famous. All the things that I never knew about... No, I don't mean that rudely. But it's just because... It's because I own a bookstore. Oh, right. I never knew anything about children's books. And now I'm like interrupting chicken. So it's about a mother chicken who's telling the little chicken a story and the little chicken keeps interrupting and the mother's like, be quiet, I'm telling you the story and the little chicken is going, no, that's not the way it goes. So I didn't mean at first to have the girls constantly interrupt. I meant for them to listen, but you know, the moment very early on in which she says, and then I threw away the U in my name, I filled out the form L-A-R-A, -A, I just tossed out the U my parents had given me, and the girls are like, wait, 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 stop, stop. You had a U in your name? Because it really is, they cannot get their heads around the fact that they don't know absolutely everything. And because they constantly interrupt to correct her about her own life, it became much more braided than I had originally imagined that it would be. The uh, problem with having two storylines mm -hmm. is that usually there's one that the reader likes better than the other. So you're reading one more quickly. I can think of many examples, none of which I'll name, um, in which there was one track of the story I really liked and one I liked a whole lot less. But by braiding them, by having the girls constantly be like, you know, knock, 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 wait, stop, 
there wasn't that differentiation that would allow the reader to say, oh, I, I'm interested in the past, but not the present. The, the setting um, of lockdown because of the COVID pandemic sets up the same kinds of things that the bel canto hostage situation and... I'm in a rut. I, <laughs> you have said in interviews that um, you tell the same story as, we, as I think everybody does. Yes. You know, Monica Wood, lots of people we know that have come and sat here on the stage said we, we all have one story and we look at it a hundred different ways and we write the next novel because there's something we have not been able to resolve in the stories before. And what was that in Tom Lake for you? It's not about what I wasn't able to resolve, it's what I was interested in. So just to very briefly do this, when I wrote the essay collection, this is a story of a happy marriage, which felt very personal and I was worried that I was going to offend my family and I let everybody in my family read it before I published it and they all said, I don't care, what, what do I care? This doesn't make any difference to me. I, you know, you said I'm divorced. Do you think that I didn't know I was divorced? That's just not a problem. Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Well, I always thought I wouldn't do anything autobiographical. And then I went back to my family and said, would you mind if I wrote an autobiographical novel? And everybody was like, I don't care what you write. I practically don't even read it. You know, it's totally fine. So then I wrote Commonwealth and they didn't care. My sister cared a little bit, but she was really nice about it. Um, and because there were a lot of scenes where the character who was her was slugging the character who was me, but she did a lot. So that's sort of her own fault. Um, and so after I wrote Commonwealth, I thought, what is the other thing that I always said I would never do? I always said that I would never write another first person novel because I had written, my first two novels were first person and I felt that I had graduated from first person. I don't feel like this is a reader, but I feel this way as a writer, that somehow writing in third person was more grown up, was more difficult. It was more difficult, just was. And so I thought, well, I always said I wouldn't do that again. I'm gonna write a first person novel. So The Dutch House was a first person novel and I found it to be much more interesting and more difficult than I had remembered it being. And so in Tom Lake, I thought, oh, I wanna do that again. So a lot of times it's, I, wanted, it's, I did something that I liked and I want to do it again. If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. The author that you're hearing interviewed is Ann Patchett. She's well known for being the author of Bel Canto. And she's being interviewed by the executive director of the Authors Guild Foundation, Lynn Bolger, and taking questions from a live audience. This was recorded in August in Blue Hill at an event sponsored by the Word Festival and Blue Hill Books. In the Dutch house, the, your narrator, your first person narrator, Daniel, Danny, is um, a male. And did that pose any issues for you? Did you like, I'm going to get my man on? Like, how, how, was your voice different? Did you was think it about, lower? Yeah. No. You know, did you? No. No. It just came out that way. Yeah. I actually have met a lot of men <laughs> in my yeah. life. And, um, and so, so Danny is a good guy. He is smart and thoughtful and beloved. Uh, and he is carried along in his life 
on the shoulders of a group of women who live to serve him and he has no idea. He has no idea that's going on. He has no idea that these women, his wife, his sister, go and sweep the pebbles out of his path before him at every moment. And he doesn't, he has no sense of his own entitlement at all. And I actually have met some people like that and it was not difficult for me to tap into that. Although, you say that. I think that actually would be a bigger laugh line, but. Yeah. Anyway. I, but he did Maeve's bidding. Like, he went, even though he did not want to do any year of med school, I felt that he, he may have been cut his crust off his sandwich, but how much love is there that if Maeve says jump, he says, okay, I'll go to, uh, the only thing I want to do is real estate, but I'll go to med school f because you told me to. That's another way of looking at it. <laughs> um, and, and maybe they're just in a symbiotic relationship, but there is a lot of service going on. When she and, and the mother-in-law are planning the wedding and she doesn't want to do that, you know, anyway. Yes. It's not the book we're here to discuss. No. Okay, back to Tom Lake. Okay. Um, and you know what time it is? It's, it's quarter of eight. Oh, it's time to take questions. How do we do that, Sam? Do, do, do I somebody... Think, you know, if, you, if someone raises their hand and asks a question, I will repeat a question. Back. Why will I do that? Because I own a bookstore, and I do this three times a week. <laughs> So if anyone has, oh, that's, see, that's so easy. Start easy, right in the front row. Okay. Would you prefer that we listen to your books or that we read your books? Would I prefer that if you listen to the book or if you read the book? That's a really interesting question. And under normal circumstances, I would be really flip and say, you know, I just care that you buy it one way or the other. <laughs> um, I will say that if you buy the audio, I would want you to get it from Libro FM, which supports your local independent bookstore, Blue Hill Books. You can put Blue Hill Books in and you don't have to give Jeff Bezos more money to go to the moon. So there's that. Um, yes, right. Uh, that's a tough one because we're here at a book event and it is, I guess I would want you to buy the book because we're here tonight. The reason I'm on book tour, as Lynn said to me earlier, why do you keep doing this at this point? Uh, and the reason that I keep doing this is because I own an independent bookstore and it is my role on this earth to support independent bookstores. So, so I'm here buy the book and maybe later on you'll be in a car and you'll get bored and you'll want to hear Meryl read it to you. I understand why you asked the question. I know, they're, you know, and they're great. And I'll tell you, and really and truly what happens all the time is that people will listen to an audio book and if they like the audio book, they will then go back and buy the book. And buying the book has also everything to do with the covers of the books. I'm not joking. These are really, really gorgeous books. And I think that a lot of people will listen to it, see the physical object, and buy it. So in the best of all possible worlds, you'll do both. 
Thank you. Yes. The question is, I seem to be, have been very generous to my friend Suki Raphael, and that there were a lack of boundaries. You know what, Carl and I, we just were the luckiest people in the world. It was such a fluke. She was coming for a couple of days. COVID hit. She got stuck. And she was with us. And everybody wanted her to be with them. Her children, her husband, her sisters, her oldest, dearest friends. Everybody wanted her. And she was with us. And it was, uh, it was just one of the greatest gifts of my life. And I think that probably every single day of our life, there is an opportunity to invite someone in and help them. And I don't take those opportunities. No one takes all of the opportunities they have to have an open heart and an open home and be generous. Every now and then you do, and the difference between me and other people is other people do it and they don't write it down. <laughs> and, and I write it down, but it was, it was nothing, nothing but a gift. It also reminded me a lot of how we used to make friends in high school and college. You know, when you had so much time to just waste with somebody, you never have that time anymore. And that's what we had because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't go anywhere. It was just the three of us. And we played Scrabble. You know, we just really dug in and baked and just lived together. It was fabulous. Such a gift. But thank you for asking. How are things going over here? Yes. How am I protecting my creative mind? Such a good question, and the answer is I have no idea, but this is how it goes. I used to be so protective of my time. I was an introvert, I had a big wall around me, I was really careful, and then I, I got hoodwinked into this bookstore thing, and, and I, it's gonna be 12 years in November, and I am now the sole owner of this bookstore. My partner left. She retired. I own the whole thing. I bought her out. So, um, how is it possible that I have written so much more in the last 11 and a half years than I did in the previous 11 and a half years? It makes no sense to me. Part of it is I read so many bad novels now. <laughs> like you cannot fathom. I used to think that literature was good. Before I opened a bookstore, I thought books were good. Because I read Henry James and Jane Austen and Toni Morrison and Colson Whitehead and Sally Rooney and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and that's the way I read. I read through time. I read around the world. I read books that my friends wrote. I read books that got great reviews and books that people recommended. I cherry-picked literature throughout history. It is as if you were an artist and you never left the Met. And so you just thought all painting was brilliant. It's not. <laughs> um, and so then I got this bookstore. We have a first editions club. That's my responsibility. So I, am, I read nothing but galleys. I am always reading books that are gonna come out in four or five months. There are not a ton of diamonds out there. 
but there are, they are there. And what it does is it makes me wanna write. I really see what people need and what I need as a reader. I did an interview, I did a podcast about a week ago and in the woman who was uh, talking to me was incredible. It was for Barnes and Noble. She was so smart and a wonderful reader. And she said, I've been reading you your whole career. And she said, I, I think that um, Bel Canto and State of Wonder, she said, I think those were really great books. But she said, the person who wrote Bel Canto and State of Wonder, I never would have thought that person was be capable of writing Commonwealth and the Dutch House and Tom Lake. And she said, what changed? And I said, I got a bookstore. And, and I, I keep thinking, this, is, this doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, and yet, and yet, it is the thing that has driven me to work harder and to push myself to be better. They don't teach that in MFAs. They don't teach anything in MFAs. <laughs> you know what they teach you in MFAs? I don't even know if they teach this, but it's the whole ethos is that the person who is the reader is somehow the enemy. And you are too cool for them. And if they don't like your book, it's because you are way up here making fine art and they're down there and they're not getting your fine art. And what I have realized, you really want people to read your books and you really want to make people, you want to give them what they need. You want to make sure they have a good experience with literature. I take a really hard rap for writing kind books, kind people for writing about joy. Here is the thing. The other stuff is well represented. <laughs> I am not writing the only book that is available to you this year. You want zombies, zombies are there for you. You want climate change dystopian novels, I can recommend a bundle. You want serial killers, we got them. Everything, everything painful and horrible and no doubt true, uh, is, it's there. But there is also, going back to our town, there is also tremendous beauty in life. There is tremendous kindness. And you choose what you see and what you see is what you show. And that's, I think, perhaps the only way we change anything. So, um, anyway, if I write a book about a, a family who loves each other, I know so many families who love each other. I know so many people who were overjoyed that their kids came home during COVID and lived at home. Like, I know it was also really hard for a lot of people, but there were a lot of people who were secretly beaming off to the side. And it's, it's okay. No one book represents the human experience, but it is okay to represent a little piece of that human experience.
rough. Yeah. Sure. You want to pick? You can't. Oh, wait. There you go. Right in the middle. Yes. <laughs> um, it's not my editor. <laughs> Love him. That's not what. It, that's not his job. Um, the book that I write is very much the book you read. I edit as I go along. I am not a beautiful writer. I am a very clear writer. I don't ever want to use 20 pages for something that I can say in a page. I can think of a lot of writers who I admire deeply. Henry James, I mean, I could go on forever, who will always take it as far as they can in the other direction. That's a beautiful thing. That's not who I am. I did the introduction several months ago in DC. Liz Strout gave the Eudora Welty lecture and I did the introduction and it was really, really good. I worked on it for a long time. They asked me like a year in advance. I'm, I'm in deep with the Welty crowd. And, um, and I kept thinking, what do I want to say about Liz? What do I want to say about Liz? And, and I gave this talk about how she, she, so many writers are Gene Kelly. And if you see Gene Kelly dance, you think, that is amazing. I will never dance. I'm just gonna sit it out. And some of my favorite writers are Gene Kelly's, Colson Whitehead, Louise Erdrich, make it so hard. I mean, not hard to read, but I just think I will never be able to do that. Liz Stroud is Fred Astaire. And when I see Fred Astaire dance, I wanna just get up, you know? He just makes it look effortless. She makes it look effortless. And one isn't better than the other. Gene Kelly's not better, Fred Astaire's not better. It's just a very, very different way of seeing things. I'm a Fred Astaire. Liz is a Fred Astaire. We want to make it look so easy. My friend Kate DiCamello, when she read the last, when she and I both read the last Liz Strout book, <laughs> Kate said, this book is going to ruin so many people because they're going to read this book and think, oh man, I can do this. <laughs> like, look how easy this is. I can just do this in a snap. And I think that's how I want people to feel. And that is how she always makes me feel. And I learned a lot from watching her work. Okay, um, I think that we could leave and it would be in the rain. This, uh, this event was supposed to go on for an hour and a half, but I think it's maybe a little cruel. It's a little warm in here, says the woman in the fleece jacket. And I'm going to sit beneath that lamp, the lovely lamp, and I'm going to write, happy birthday, Aunt Susan. <laughs> Even if you don't have an Aunt Susan, that's what I'm gonna write on your book. Um, and before we go, I would like to say, Thank you to the wonderful Blue Hill Books for doing this. Go Blue Hill Books. And I also want to say thank you to Lynn because 
The thing, after writing novels, the thing that I most often do in my life is interview authors. And it's a ton of work, and you made it look effortless. And you, you were lovely to sit up here and talk with. I'm the Fred Astaire. You are in the Fred Astaire camp. You absolutely are. Thank you. Thank you. That was author Ann Patchett speaking with Lynn Bulger, executive director of the Authors Guild Foundation, and taking questions from a live audience in Blue Hill in August. The event was sponsored by the Word Festival and Blue Hill Books and recorded by WERU General Manager Matt Murphy. You've been listening to Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture on the first Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WERU-FM. Be sure to visit WERU.org to subscribe to our local public affairs shows and short features as podcasts or listen on demand. You can also download our app and take us with you wherever you go. I'm Amy Brown. You can reach me at news at WERU.org. Until next month, thanks for listening.